Welcome once again to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversations with creative people in all areas of the arts, theater, radio, voiceover, music, literature, and of course, film. My guest today is award-winning director and producer Roger Lyons. Roger owns his own firm called Many Hats Productions. He produces commercials, PSAs, web videos, documentaries, and so much more. Today, we're going to be talking with Roger about a true labor of love, a mission of sorts, a film project that has finally come to fruition after nearly two decades of hard work. The documentary is entitled Etched in Glass, The Legacy of Steve Ross, a story of one man overcoming incredible odds surviving the horror of the Holocaust, then to spend his entire life in service to others. Let's listen to the trailer and then we'll talk with Roger. Hope. After hell. The compelling true story of Steve Ross, a boy who faced death for five horrific years and rose up as a shining example of determination. Stephen never took no for an answer courage. I was just amazed that he was even alive. And tolerance. And racism, bigotry. Don't let anyone get away with it. You gotta stand up and say, I'm not gonna take that from you. Survivor, teacher, mentor, inspiration. Don't give up your education. Stick with it. You have got so much to live for. And to see somebody actually here, you know, you know, it reaches me, you know? Steve Ross showed up, and uh, he was the greatest resource that, that ever entered my life. He made you feel important. He would tell the story of the unknown American soldier who rescued him as a boy and showed him kindness. After I was rescued from hell, I came upon a soldier that showed me compassion. He gave me his food. He put his arm around me and he gave me a flag. It is hanging here. That soldier and that flag rekindled his spirit to live and inspired his love for America. I just want to show you the little flag that was given to me by a soldier. And always, there was that search for the soldier. I have searched for this angel for many years without success. He's been searching for 67 years. He needs to be able to rest on this. Steve Ross is the greatest man I've ever met. Etched in Glass, the legacy of Steve Ross. How would you like to be remembered? The promotional trailer for the new documentary film Etched in Glass, The Legacy of Steve Ross, a film by Roger Lyons, who joins me in studio to talk about the film and the evolution of it. And uh, Roger, this whole project started, as you told me, 18 years prior so it's been about half your life, which makes you a very young man, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. See how complimentary I am? Good, good at math, too. Kick things up. Let's talk about how this, this all started, this desire to put the story of Stephen Ross, which is a remarkable one, down on film so that the world could know it. Uh, was there one incident, or did you meet him at some point? How did it come about? Yeah, I was at uh, WBZ-TV uh, back in the day. This is the year 2000. 
And uh, I was assigned to do uh, one-minute profiles of uh, hometown heroes, uh, unsung heroes, and so forth. And uh, I was left to do all the research myself and to find these people and produce one of these a week for like three years. And one of the first people I, I ran into was uh, Steve Ross. It was actually suggested to me by Ren Ross, no relation, uh, actress, friend of mine. And a former podcast guest, by the way. <laughs> the great. She's Cross-reference here. Yes. Um, and she suggested that I give Steve Ross a call. And all I really knew about him was that he was had something to do with the Holocaust Memorial and that he was a survivor. So it was, I thought it was great for what, that one-minute piece, that profile I was supposed to be doing. But I got a phone call from him or I called him to set up the appointment to do a, an interview. And he talked for two solid hours without ta basically taking a breath, telling me his life story about all of the, thing, the things that happened to him what should happen to the survivors and what we can't forget and have to remember and all those things. And it made a huge impression on me. And uh, it was right about the time where there was a lot of Holocaust denial going on mm -hmm. with Ahmadinejad of Iran and lots of other groups that were starting to deny the Holocaust, which as a Jew and a producer and someone trying to find the truth about this person in the profile, I was upset about it. I thought there's some way I could, I need to be able to do something about this. So when I, when I really heard Steve's story, I thought this has got to get out. This, I have to, what I, what I basically did was self-funded the first few shoots so that we could keep his story for posterity mm -hmm. Tell have somebody tell the truth as a survivor and a witness to when, what went on in the Holocaust. And so we, I recorded a, I think the interview lasted like six minutes at the, at the New England Holocaust Memorial. And at that point, I decided to basically follow Steve around as much as I could and film as many uh, events in his life as, as possible. Like uh, he gave a lecture at uh, Boston High School, which no longer is in existence, but he gave this to a, a huge group of, of inner city kids, at-risk youth, um, and they were just blown away by his story. Mm. And, and the, the, basically the, what they took away was if this guy could survive – 10 concentration camps as a child, basically, mm -hmm. over a five-year period, then they could, they could do anything. Well, what's really interesting about Steve Ross is his life post-Holocaust has been dedicated to helping people and spreading his message, but also he, he's a social worker for his main gig after coming to the States. And he's affected the lives of hundreds, maybe thousands of people one-on-one, -on -one, not right. just with his story to the public, but it's, it's a great uh, example of putting your life together and helping others. Right. He basically worked his way through school to earn three college degrees plus a, an honorary doctorate from Northeastern. Uh, having come into the country with no education, not being able to speak English, it's just everything and no money, just everything mm -hmm. against him. Mm -hmm. um, but he fought against all odds his entire life, really. And so he was able to um, become a social worker, basically a street worker mm. um, in the, for at-risk kids in, in the Boston area. And they, they literally all say he changed their lives in, in some way. Right. And they still do it today. They still worship him, basically, in a lot of ways. In pursuing the story as it evolves, you realize there's a, a well, more than one, there are probably a dozen dramatic twists and turns. And the one that we can just focus on a little bit is the the American soldier who showed kindness to this little boy who, as you say, had been through 10, not three, not one, not six, 10 concentration camps, somehow survived. And just briefly tell us, without giving any of the 
uh, the, the finale away, what, what that soldier meant to him and what that was all about. Well, he was pretty, he was downtrodden, sick. Uh, they just had, had opened the gates to Daco and said, go find the hospital and just released everybody without really a plan. And so people were wandering out onto the fields and so forth. And a, a, a tank battalion drove up and um, there was a, a soldier on top of the tank eating food and and he spotted Steve, who looked particularly bad. He jumped off his tank, offered Steve some some of his food, uh, gave him a hug, and then he handed him what he thought was a handkerchief to wipe the tears from his eyes, basically, and it turned out to be a small American flag. Now, Steve, a Polish kid who'd been in concentration camps, never seen an American human being, would have no idea what an American flag looked like at the time. But he soon found out what it was, and he decided that when he was able to, to go to America and try to find the soldier who liberated him and thank him. And, and basically, that's what led him to come here after a couple of years in a DP camp, recovering from his illnesses and so forth. And, so, and, and it may, not to be too uh, much in the, in the technical realm, but it makes for such an amazing image in the video and in the movie because you see him port- portray that not a replica, but the actual flag. He shows it to groups, and it's such a touching moment. Right. That's, he, he, that's the flag. That's the only thing he's kept as a memento from his childhood, really. So and it's he, been a search over the years in his adult life for this particular soldier to say thank you, I guess. Right. He searched for 67 years to find this American soldier just to mm-hmm. say thank you. And he joined all sorts of VFW posts and went to all sorts of veterans organizations over the over decades to try to find this this person to thank him and so forth. And and basically that incident where he was shown kindness for the first time spurred his resilience. It just completely changed his life and and it made him realize that he could be loved. Victor Frankl's famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which was born out of his capture and, and concentration camp experience, uh, always blows my mind because here you have the worst of all possible situations. We complain, those of us in modern day, about traffic or about family issues. Man, oh man, you see somebody like Steve Ross, who's portrayed in the film so beautifully, and you realize there's something about the human spirit that is absolutely indomitable in some people. Well, one of the threads throughout the film is uh, a a kid from um, the Burke High School, Jeremiah Burke High School who is quizzing Steve, he's asking him questions. He's actually interviewing him throughout the film and asking him, what made you want to survive? And I'm not going to answer the questions, but he was asking the pertinent questions of Steve. And Steve really opened up to the kid. And um, so there, there are moments in the film where you hear, you hear Steve saying why he felt he could make it and what America meant to him. He became very, very patriotic. Um, he would go to lots of these um, swearing-in ceremonies for new citizens and talk about how wonderful America was and show everybody the little American flag that he kept on his person for his entire life. Mm-hmm. He's still alive, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like he's no longer with us. Mm-hmm. At the moment of this recording, he's 92 he's years 90, old. 92. 92. And by the way, we should mention, for those who live in the Boston area, his son uh, has done very good work in public service. He's been a a city councilor, he ran for mayor, he's now an attorney, I understand, Michael. And Michael's been uh, a champion for his dad, which is really nice to see. He really has, and he's been, a, in a sense, a proxy for Steve. Steve was unable to um, 
really make speeches like he used to after um, uh, after the Veterans Day ceremony at the uh, Massachusetts State House in right. 2012. A couple of days after that, he had a stroke, mm-hmm. and he hasn't quite been the same. I mean, he's still the same feisty, you know, uh, tough guy. He's trying to just plod through and so forth. Um, but he's unable to give those speeches the way he used to. So his son Mike fills in, and I fill in actually a lot of times too when we're doing screenings in my film. Let me ask you some some backgrounders on the production and how it comes together. It's 2018, but you say 18 years ago. A lot of things have changed in 18 years. You know, we now shoot video films on our cell phones. But seriously, what what when you were thinking about it way back then, were you thinking the way you're thinking now and the way you're seeing it now, or did you just want to? hang on to this footage to see what might happen? Or yeah, cons- for, I, as I was saying earlier, there. I, what I really wanted to do was si- to capture mo- moments of Steve's life for posterity, okay? Ultimately, it would have been nice my, in my, my thinking to do a film about him, uh, but I really didn't have money uh, at the time and didn't really pursue uh, a big fundraising thing at the point. I just wanted to capture his his the truth about Steve and what he's what he stood for basically. There's still, by the way, on the website steverossfilm.org an opportunity for people to help up because the film, even though it's done, you now have to promote it. You have to get it shown. I need a distribution deal basically because the the idea is not to keep this on my laptop. That's not going to do anybody any good. It's to basically. Um, spread the words of Steve's story, you know, the, the story of tolerance and determination and hope um, really all over the world. It's an international story. It's not just a local story. Um, it happens to take place primarily in Boston, but it's really, it's really timeless. One of the things that strikes me is many of the images of Steve giving speeches, he's doing so in a concentration camp uniform. Right. Right. And, and to me, that that it would seem to be extremely hard to do that, and yet it's such an image that evokes so much memory and so much importance. Uh, that seems to be one of his uh, fortes. Right, right. Uh, he, he's basically paying homage to all the the people who who died in the Holocaust by wearing that uniform. Um, and uh, so it does stick out like a sore thumb when you see him just walk into a yeah. room, in a sense. Yeah. But um, that's how he feels comfortable in talking about the the bad, terrible, horrific times. You mentioned uh, earlier, and we should at least for the folks listening in other countries and in other parts of this country, talk about the New England Holocaust Memorial, which is located in the heart of Boston near Fannell Hall. And uh, I, I'm not as aware of the history as to who really motivated this, but obviously Steve had a big part to play. Well, Steve was the driving force. It was his idea to build a memorial um, to the Holocaust survivors, or the, I'm sorry, the opposite, the people who lost the 6 million Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. And he made, he was good friends with Ray Flynn back in the 60s when they were both street workers. Mm-hmm. And so they knew each other and and they kind of kept track of each other. And when mayor, when Ray Flynn became mayor of Boston, Steve contacted him and pitched the idea of, of building a Holocaust memorial in somewhere in Boston. Well, Ray Flynn suggested, why not put it in the Freedom Trail? He, right outside his window at the mayor's office in City Hall. And so they made a deal for uh, a dollar, a lease, for 99 years to put that Holocaust memorial in the park, literally right outside Ray Flynn's window next to the Fannel Hall. Mm. And so... Steve uh, recruited some folks to help uh, raise money. Steve uh, Ray had already approved the the land, and um, so he he talked to Bill Carmen, who is uh, uh, 
a, a real doer from Newton uh, who d- donated the first quarter of a million dollars to get this Holocaust Memorial built. They had a design competition where they had people from all over the world suggest ideas for the site. And um, a guy named Stanley Seidovitz, an architect from San Francisco, is the winner. And he he put together a an amazing of course, six glass towers. What kind of a safe place, <laughs> safe and secure place would you think six glass towers would be? But they are. There are six glass towers um, with six million numbers. A number, a million numbers, replicating the the, the tattoos. tattoos on the arms of the Holocaust, uh, the people who were in the Holocaust in the camps, and that became really an iconic site. If you go anywhere downtown Boston, anywhere near the Freedom Trail, Fanel Hall, and so forth, you can't miss it. It's six huge glass towers yeah. with steam coming out of the right. bottom to replicate the burning of the people. In telling the story of him as a youngster, the harrowing ways in which he survived, let's put it that way, uh, even today, even knowing what you know, it almost sounds unbelievable. The idea that he would hide out in a latrine. I mean, uh, just the worst possible scenarios. And yet here he is, 92 years later, uh, a survivor. Of all the stories about him in the camps, was there one or two that that seemed to stay with you, that that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, the one to me is that's the most uh, cinematic in a sense is the when he, he was escaped from Auschwitz. Uh, he and his brother were uh, in line at um, Auschwitz, and there were actually two lines. And he got into one line. He wasn't sure what he was doing. So they were all milling around. It was mm. probably disorganized. And it was a line where they were tattooing arms, the numbers of, of the uh, Holocaust, the uh, inmates. So Steve got a tattoo on his arm. And then people were just sort of going into trains and all over the place and on this platform. And he saw the opportunity to escape in a sense. And so he ran towards a train went underneath the train and hung on to the train as it was leaving Auschwitz, which was a death camp. And it took him to another camp, which was a labor camp, but at least he didn't get killed. So he he basically escaped by hanging underneath a train for I don't know how many miles and just holding on for dear life. Yeah, there's so many stories about uh, Jews being sort of led to the slaughter and and not believing the worst was about to happen and they were just complacent. But then there there were stories and Steve's just one of them. And there are more than you might think, I guess, of people who either fought back or escaped or were helped by Gentiles and managed to elude the Nazis. Um, When I was in Israel last year at Yad Vashem, which is the great memorial, uh, amazingly moving uh, tribute and memory center, uh, there was a section that had uh, been dedicated to those stories of Jews and non-Jews, by the way, who either fought back or figured out a way to get out of the camp and and go to freedom. So I, I think that's an important message. He never gave up. No, and and, back, and basically, let's go back to Kwame, the person, the the high school kid who interviewed him back at the at the um, the Burke High School. Burke, yeah. He said, "What made you want to stay alive?" And it was basically to tell this story to everybody, so that people would understand what happened at the camps and that it was a fact. It, this this did happen. Of course. Now, let's go back to the year 2000 or so when you did this profile piece as part of your assignment at WBZ-TV. And uh, do you ever reflect on how your life has changed because of the work you do? Because I 
personally, I think there's a lot of stuff that I do that, you know, gets done and I move on. But there, and then there were certain people I meet and certain stories I've uncovered for myself that have changed me. What's your personal take? Well, I, I have to tell you, I never anticipated the reaction that we've gotten for the film so far. It's been uh, – it's won the best documentary, uh, the Audience Award, but for best documentary of both the Boston Jewish Film Festival and – the Rhode Island International Film Festival, which was great in itself. Um, but since then, we've gotten dozens of requests to show the film at schools, synagogues, senior centers, interfaith groups, and mm. so forth. And I, just last year, I did about two dozen screenings mm. at these places because there's so much hate and anti-Semitism roiling up now that's that's or shown its ugly face now um that the the lessons of Steve's life are more important and more present than ever the power of film uh, Joseph Goebbels of course took advantage of his propaganda expertise in the 30s and created these images but at the same time there's so much positive that can come out of filmmaking isn't there Absolutely, absolutely. Images make such a difference in in the, and music and all the uh, accoutrement that you need as a. So d you directed and you also wrote the script or the wrote. The yeah, I really didn't have it except for my co-producer Tony Bennis, who's been a godsend since uh, 2008 when I I met him. That was by halfway through production, mm -hmm. as it turns out. Um, yeah, I really didn't have a team of any sort, and um, so I have. Many Hats Productions, my little production company is kind of me. <laughs> Wearing many hats. Many hats, yes. I must have a big head. I don't know. Well, <laughs> it, it, let me just ask you then what the future holds uh, short term because you mentioned a couple of film festivals where you've taken top prize. Obviously, there are many throughout the country and throughout the world. Is that one of the prospects that you're following up? Film festivals are not really the goal. The film that's nice. It's good for promotion and so forth and visibility. But um, what I really want to do is get distribution as widespread as possible. So the story of Steve, which is very, very timely. Oh, yes. And very timeless. Mm -hmm. um, so that can be told to many, many countries around the world, not just here in America. But so I'm looking now at uh, several different uh, companies uh, who do distribution to try to get widespread um, distribution to where this film is needed, which is pretty much everywhere at this point. And it's so cool to live in this day and age because you have so many uh, genre venues, I guess, as opposed to even 2000, about 18 years ago when this millennium changed, when you really just had uh, films in, in actual theaters yep. or PBS documentaries. You didn't have the kind of cable out access and, and online access. Right. Well, there is, certainly, there is interest from, from public television, which is good. Mm -hmm. Um but there, I didn't. There weren't streaming services back in the day, and you know, hundreds of channels of cable and so forth. So I think there's that's an advantage. I would think. You know, as we speak, Peter Jackson is releasing this amazing World War One film, which I'm desperate to see. And I think that's the real contribution of artists that we can create wonderful art, but we can also preserve history. So what you've done is preserved. Uh, not just Boston and, and New England and America, and but the world, uh, a piece of history that has to be told. That's true. And, and actually, there are four survivors in the film, one of whom passed away a couple of years ago, Bob Berger, who was a good friend of Steve's, what really his first friend in America. Um, 
And one of my goals is to try to get this film distributed while the survivors are all still alive, as many as possible. They're all in their 90s now, so right, it's right. it's going to be tough, but we're hoping to. Let's do then the appeal. You have an opportunity here with this audience, wherever they may be, to ask for assistance and ask for their attention. So take it away. What would you like to ask them? Right. Well, we have a, a website, steverossfilm.org, um, and we're basically looking for funds to help with the distribution. And it's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of traveling involved and, um, production and, uh, that's just going to, and they're funds for people who actually do the distribution. We have, we have to pay them. They take a huge percentage and so forth, but it's going to be worth it because yeah. this story has got to get out. So, uh, org is our website. Uh, it's actually named steverossfilm.org because for uh, we've had five or six different names of this film, and we finally just settled on steverossfilm.org because we knew that's what it was. <laughs> it was this film about Steve. Well, it's it's called Etched in Glass. Uh, oh, we should the say the name. Screen, Good idea. <laughs> which I said at the beginning, but I'll say it again. Etched in Glass, the legacy of Steve Ross. And when you explained about the memorial and the glass towers, I mean, that's an obvious tie-in, but I think... Uh, I, I'm the first thought that comes to my mind is uh, Crystal Knocked. I mean, I, I, there's so many things that come to mind when you hear the word glass in terms of. And remember the, the that experience. it was it was vandalized um, last year twice it in was. 2017. There were right. two people who had broken panes of that glass, and so and there's actually a book now as well, um, a, an autobiography of Steve, co-written by Brian Wallace and um, Glenn Frank, called uh, From Broken Glass. So it's kind of kind of seems like a uh, a partnership there, but they were they were written on separate paths, but now they're intersecting because we sometimes go sure. and show the film and talk about the book at the same well, time. Well, what a great legacy and help to a legacy that you're helping to provide with this film and all the work that you've uh, poured into it and all the sweat and equity. But it's worth it, isn't it? It definitely is. It's very satisfying. So fil film fans will definitely want to catch at some point, hopefully on Netflix within a few months. Check out steverossfilm.org uh, where you can see it. It's called Etched in Glass, The Legacy of Steve Ross. And I know Roger for many years, and I know how hard you've worked on this. So thanks for sharing some of it. It must be nice to at least have a finished product that is now available. So Absolutely. It. That's really wonderful. Congratulations. Thanks so much. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.